Welcome to the Digital Leaders Podcast. Today's guest is Heather Savory. Heather is co-chair of the Global Working Group on Big Data for Official Statistics at the United Nations. She has a strong track record in effective governance, public and regulatory policy and technology, including digital and data transformation. Before her current role with the UN, she was Deputy National Statistician and Director General for Data Capability at the Office for National Statistics. Hello, Heather, and welcome to the Digital Leaders Podcast. Hi, Robin. I'm delighted to be here. So, um, yes, it's great to have you on, Heather. So let's start by asking you to tell us who you are and what you do. Well, thank you. So um, my name is Heather Savory, and I've had a variety of different roles in technology, um, leadership, consulting over the years. Obviously, um, I'm very delighted to be a member of the Digital Leaders Advisory Board at the moment, And um, I'm currently focusing on some work with the United Nations, where I'm the co-chair for the Global Working Group on Big Data for Official Statistics. Um, What this is about is actually trying to put in places the systems and platforms to allow the international statistics community friction-free access to data, compute, algorithms, a collaborative space, and methods to learn from one another and their partners across academia, NGOs, and the private sector. So it's really a huge collaborative effort to bring together trusted partners to use trusted data ethically in the public interest. Wow. So how long are you doing that for? How long have you been doing that? Well, I've been doing this actually for a couple of years. I was uh, previously at the Office for National Statistics as Director General of Data Capability, And it was whilst I was there that I was invited to co-chair this global working group. So it's not a full-time role for me, but it's something that does take up quite a lot of my time. So tell us a little bit about your journey to uh, the Office of National Statistics and running, sort of running that organisation, because we have had and, and we do have some fantastic digital women on the podcast. And it's always interesting to find out how, what people's journey is, you know, were they inspired by their parents? Was there their father a mathematician or an engineer was their mother uh, doing something in science. Uh, what, what's, what was your background, Heather? Well, it's interesting you should say that, um, Robin, because I think role models are very, very important, particularly for young women and um, other underrepresented groups in the digital and data space. Um, as it happens, my father was a metallurgist. He used to work for the General Electric Company, and he was a specialist in metal ceramic seals, which is um, was obviously making valves. Um, so pre-digital, but a strong technical background. Uh, my mother was a chemist, although um, she gave up work, actually, um, when she started a family, which was more or less what was expected of her in those days. So, yes, I did have um, scientific parents, always um, encouraged to take an interest in things scientific, whether it was nature or um, building things, making things. I used to do woodwork with my grandfather in his garage. 
And in fact, um, I went to a mixed comprehensive school where girls were supposed to do needlework and cookery and boys were doing metalwork and woodwork. And I did stage a one woman protest outside the uh, headmaster's office because I would have, I wanted to do the metalwork and woodwork. So I've always really had um, a strong interest in, in practical and scientific things. When it came to going to university, I wanted to do something vocational. And I went to Loughborough University and trained as an electronic and electrical engineer, which I think was a surprise to my teachers and also my parents. I expect, I think they expected me to do something on the pure science side. But um, I had a, a friend at school who was lucky enough to have one of the first BBC microcomputers. And we were allowed to go around to his house and sit and watch him using his computer. And I thought, you know what, I think computers are going to be quite important in the future. And I'd quite like to get into those. Um, so, as I said, I trained in electronic and electrical engineering. And I initially went to work for the General Electric Company um, in research, um, where I sort of fell into full custom chip design. So, the early part of my career, I was a systems engineer and I used to design um, silicon chips. First of all, ASICs, application specific integrated circuits. And then later I ran full custom silicon design for a, a startup company called 3D Labs. It was a UK startup, but positioned itself as a Silicon Valley company. And what we did there was we actually um, built the world's first hardware accelerated 3D graphics. So everything that um, the uh, younger generations take for granted now with their 3D gaming um, was something which, which just didn't exist at that point in time. And we moved 3D graphics acceleration from mainframes onto the PC platform. Um, I did that for um, a good number of years. I think I was there for about um, eight or nine years. Um, and we um, floated on NASDAQ, we went public. And then in my 30s, I decided that um, I'd, I really wanted a break. And I, I will say that um, anybody who knows what it's like actually being involved in a startup will understand that it is, it is extremely hard work. And it was a very different organization when we were actually no longer a private company. So I decided at that point that I would uh, take a rain check on my career because I'd never had a gap year. And in fact, um, to everybody's surprise, I went off backpacking for a year. And again, that's something I would really recommend to people because life is short and you must make sure that you, you get out and see what you want to see and do what you want to do rather than being um, focused entirely on work all of the time. So um, coming back to the UK from my travels in Australia and New Zealand and um, a great time in the Caribbean where I learned to sail, I took a look around to think about what I would do next. Now, much as I love the United States and I had spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, um, you know, I'm old enough to we actually watched Facebook building their campus, watched Google building themselves. But I didn't really want to live in Silicon Valley, so I decided um, that I would come back to the United Kingdom. Now, unfortunately, um, when I got back to the United Kingdom, it was at a point where the UK was really um, falling behind a little bit in terms of innovation. So I um, moved then into consulting and into government. And this was because I really wanted to put something back into the, into the United Kingdom. So um, as I mentioned before, I went to a 
uh, a very normal school. I had a grant to go to university and I would never have had the great opportunities that I had, had I not, not been able to go to university. So I initially went into government, into the treasury, and I delivered the Gershon Efficiency Savings, um, which was a cross-government programme to improve the efficiency of the way government itself operates. Um, I then went to move to something with a little bit more of a business focus. I went to work for um, the what was um, then Burr, but is now Department for Business in the Better Regulation Executive. And I did some work there on um, cutting red tape, reducing the regulatory burden on small businesses. So I think a lot of my career um, in these sort of later years, if you like, has been about um, building teams and bringing together different stakeholder groups to to work together. Um, I went to the Office for National Statistics simply because I saw the advertisement for the Director General for Data Capability and really, it was a great opportunity for me because it, it was something which brought together all of my um, varied earlier career um, in, in that um, what the ONS needed was a full technical, digital and data and workforce transformation with all of the leadership challenges that, that are associated with that, plus the need to understand technology in detail, to understand the emerging um, data landscape and my experience previously of having worked in government. So I was um, really had a, a great four years at the ONS, not only um, doing the sort of the tech uplift, getting rid of the legacy systems, moving the organization forward in terms of its approach to using data. So helping statisticians understand the, the wealth of data which is available and how it can be combined with the very well used um, survey techniques that, that have been in place for many, many years. In summary, I would say that my, my career has been extremely varied. And I think what has motivated me um, throughout is, is the, the excitement and sometimes rather scary nature of, of a really big challenge. And I've always taken on big challenges, which maybe some people um, wouldn't have wanted to take on because with those big challenges often comes quite a, a considerable amount of risk. So it's, it's, um, it's not been a straightforward career so far, but it's been one that I've really enjoyed. Amazing. I'm sort of glad I didn't interrupt you at any point there, because uh, we will have to go back over a few things. But um, that's extraordinary career that you've had. I'm sure our listener will be sat there sort of slightly open mouthed thinking, <laughs> wow, you've really, you've seen a lot of different sectors. I love the fact that 3D Labs sort of did the first uh, proper 3D modeling, which is now in the gaming sector. So do you keep up to speed with the, uh, I guess, you know, the startup inward, in, you know, investment sector for tech in the UK? I mean, do you have any thoughts or reflections on, you know, is it so much easier these days? Is it so much harder, um, either for the individual like yourself or for companies to do some of the things you were doing? It's both easier and more difficult. I think it's easier because, you know, as a as a as a country and and really globally, the the idea that that, that there are these innovative small companies is not something which is astonishing to people. People do understand um, how important startups and small to medium enterprises are as part of the the overall ecosystem of of organisations who are doing new things. What we see over the years is, 
you know, the the sort of the the giant system integrators of the past come and go, even the even the, the current sort of monoliths, you know, will will also um, there's a natural life cycle for for any organization. So I think that the idea that innovation needs to happen is something that um, people will now accept. And the pace of change generally in society with digital and data is something which people are also familiar with and have come to terms with. I think where it becomes um, more difficult is that um, there are there are a lot of people um, doing sort of web startups, digital startups, who might be very good technically, but you you do need more than just the the ability to to do the the technical side of work, the innovative side of work, looking at users. You do need more than that in order to create an organisation which is sustainable in the longer term. And I think this is really where um, leadership skills come in and the the ability to find people who can both understand enough of the technology and keep up with enough of the technology to guide and assist organisations, yet also have the ability to operate at a sort of corporate level is something which is a real challenge. I mean, we talk a lot about the skills gaps and skills challenges we have. Um, we have those skills gaps at the sort of fundamental level of, of needing enough people who can um, work with technologies and design and develop. But I think we mustn't we mustn't overlook the need also for the leadership and management and business skills which are necessary to make any organisation successful. Absolutely. The next phase of your career, of course, was sort of going into government. So there's an awful lot going on around sort of innovation of the public sector these days. Um, Did that exist when you were there or was it sort of expressed differently or was driving efficiency and cost saving kind of the agenda? I guess perhaps the tech wasn't there to transform in the way it is now. Yes, I mean, it's taken um, government and not just government also um, large organisations quite a long time to get to the the, the forefront, if you like, of of um, digitally enabled change and transformation, and and that's still going on. And um, one of the things that I've always found interesting, I've come to terms with, I suppose, as I've sort of seen more of it and matured a little bit myself. But what I've always found quite frustrating, coming from a a real innovative startup culture is just how slowly it takes for things to happen. I think that um, if you look at what government was doing when I first went to, went in there to work on the efficiency program, the efficiency program was really more about organisational change than it was about digital. And it's taken, I think, a good 10 years for government to embrace digital in the way that it's needed to. But one of the things that we shouldn't overlook when we think about government and the public sector is that there are actually many private sector organisations who are also struggling to bring on board digital and data transformation. The impact of the legacy systems, you know, in the private sector, you tend to, funding tends to be easier. There is less um, aversion to taking risk. And also for many organisations in the private sector, um, you you have phased products, so you can actually you can build into your product refresh changes, which is much more difficult for government if you're having to deliver services. You can't stop delivering what you're delivering to the public in order to make the changes you need to make. And this was something 
um, which we obviously were acutely aware of and had to manage at the Office for National Statistics. You can't stop publishing monthly statistics, which businesses, citizens and government are um, dependent on because you want to change the way that you're doing something. So there's a challenge of setting up um, parallel tracks there to do the innovative work, if you like, in 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 teams which are to one side but connected with the mainstream business there. Okay, so let's talk now about data and the Office for National Statistics. So has data been part of your journey up to this point or did you see that, did you kind of work out that data was going to be driving the next phase of digital transformation and you wanted to get into the data sector? Data has always been part of my life. If you look back to what we used to do with 3D graphics, it's all about data. It's about how you process data, how you use it to represent things. And so to any engineer of any discipline, data is not a new thing. I think what opened my eyes to the power of data to um, do do much more than than we used to think about it um, was when I became advisor to um, Francis Maud um, during those um, transformation years um, on open data. And within about two to three weeks of actually taking on that role, I suddenly realized that there was this wealth of data being used throughout government to develop to run services um, which had many, many other useful applications. And to me, I would say that's probably maybe eight or nine years ago. That is for me when the, if you like, the data transformation started, when people started to think about data in its own right, not as a tool, but as something which is a really valuable resource. Um, so I joined the ONS because I saw that um, the role there was advertised and really it brought together all of the all of my early career, which was quite varied, but in one place. So in some ways it was it was an ideal role for me. And you know, when I got to the ONS, I found that there was an awful lot to do because in my view, you can't you can't do a digital transformation without also doing a data transformation. You can't transform digital and data without also transforming your workforce. These things are part of a a holistic ecosystem, which enables you to get things done. You know, whether you're um, a a scientific organization, whether you're a a private sector organization offering services like a bank and insurance company, or whether you're in government. So a lot of people I know talk about um, data as the new oil. And I think that was a, a useful catchphrase it's still a useful slogan to get people who don't really have haven't thought about data to realize that it's something which is of real value but to me data is actually much more valuable than oil and the reason that I say that is because if you look at any particular collection of data sets if one person takes a lens on that data for one purpose then that data is still there when you, when you use data, you don't consume it, and it can be consumed by multiple people in, for multiple purposes in multiple different ways, which is why I find the data agenda something which is so fascinating. There are also, of course, the um, cultural and um, political challenges around you know, how we use data. How does government use your data? How do businesses use your data? Um, 
what what of my data belongs to me? And so it's this effusion, if you like, between the sort of strategy, the technology, and the um, political or regulatory environment is something which I find um, enormously enjoyable, enormously challenging, and something where I think there are many, many um, questions that we have yet to crack. So just coming back a little bit more to the the ONS, the other um, experience of, of the transformation of the ONS is that, of course, the ONS is a production organisation. Statistics are being produced every month. And unlike some private businesses, you can't um, make a product obsolete. You can't um, suddenly stop producing um, a, a statistical series which people are re- relying on for its longevity. People want to look back over tens or hundreds of years to see how economy and society is changing. So in line with many organisations, the transformation work there has to be carried out in parallel to business as usual, and that is a huge challenge. So now at this stage, Heather, you're going to have to be ever so patient with me as I fumble my way through a very complicated topic. But the first thing is that a lot of that data has been collected over a long period of time in an environment where change was quite slow. So the famous, I hope I get this right, the famous SIC codes have been collected for a long time. And therefore, in terms of longevity of data and trends, that's very exciting. But, you know, there's so much merging of and blurring of industry boundaries in this kind of new digital technological world that, you know, are we still collecting the right data uh, to help us make decisions and, you know, at a speed that we should be collecting it? And, And as I say, forgive the naivety of the question. It's not a naive question at all, Robin. And it's actually, it's actually a very interesting one. Historically, data was collected for specific purposes. And you're absolutely right about the industry codes. You know, the industry codes probably aren't keeping up with the emerging technical landscape in the same way that our legislation and regulations, both domestically and internationally, are way behind where the tech companies are. And I think this is a this is a real challenge for all of us. In terms of are we still collecting the right data? Well, my view is that we need to th- start thinking about data which is already available in a very different way. And this was one of the things that um, I introduced this thinking into the ONS. So if you want to find something out about the economy or society, um, rather than commissioning a survey and going out and surveying people, albeit it may now be in a digital fashion, I think it's much more powerful to look at some of the data sources which are readily available to us um, and to try and frame our question or frame our investigation in a way which looks at the data and says, what can this data tell me, rather than trying to go and collect data for a specific narrow purpose. And really, that's why the work that I'm doing on big data is so interesting. There are some very, very powerful data sources out there now. I mean, um, they're, they're available on our consumer gadgets like our phones. You know, we all have maps. We all have um, geolocation, but that satellite data that you you see when you look at something like Google Maps, you know, is is essentially live, real time data which can tell us an awful lot about what's going on in the world. And so, I think that um, a nice phrase that somebody um, who was very wise at the ONS came up with was, "We need to look down the look, look down the other end of the telescope." So rather than looking pointing our telescope at the data we think we want. 
we need to actually look at all the data that's available and try and work out um, what it can tell us. Yeah, that makes that makes enormous sense. So what is the ONS developing new sources of data or new ways, you know, coming back to your point about sort of going out and sourcing data? Does that then present a whole new set of challenges about trust and and ownership of data and I mean, I, I've been hearing a lot. We've been talking about data a lot at Digital Leaders. And interestingly, this morning, I was at an industry event rather than a government event. And they seem to have, you know, siloed data that people want to hang on to and not share. Mm. Uh, it seems to be as prevalent in a large PLC as it is between government departments. So uh, is ONS the champion of developing this or... Does that belong elsewhere in government? Well, I, I think that the ONS um, has made huge um, steps forward. Obviously, there um, there is now um, appropriate data sharing is starting to happen. And if you look at government across the piece, it is, it is siloed um, in the same way that um, you're describing many large corporates are siloed. So this is why the cultural aspects of explaining and getting people comfortable with um, using data in different ways and sharing their data are so important. And, and you know, any digital leader needs to understand how their organisation is is dealing with handling and views data um, in order to be able to to make the most of digital and data working working hand in hand. If you look at um, what I would call the 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 genesis of digital is really about the the front end, as, as I would call it, with my engineering hat on. So it's about how you're interfacing with your users. It's about getting on the web. It's about providing services through browsers and on mobiles, different channels, et cetera, et cetera. But what underlies everything which is now available to people, be they citizens or businesses or your, um, you know, some, some sort of retail site where you want to contact customer support, all that nice digital, which is, Outward facing and front end, there, there are there are complicated systems which underpin that, and in many cases the the systems and data engineering is is sometimes overlooked, or has been overlooked in the past. Um, so the the classic phrase that everybody uses about fixing the plumbing, uh, you know, to do data transformation, you really need to fix the plumbing, and you particularly need to need to do that. Um, if you're going to get the most out of data as, as a resource, now at the ONS we did we did get off legacy systems. Um, I have to I would admit freely that um, when I took the job I thought oh well this will be fine. I've got lots of contacts in the private sector. I've worked with lots of big tech companies. I'll find people who have solved these problems. And you know we're government. We're not in competition. We can work in partnership. And um, I found. To my horror, actually, at the time, this was four or five years ago, um, when I started that work, I found that actually, as you've mentioned, these um, these challenges are there just as much in big corporates as as they are in the in the public sector. I think the public sector, actually, um, in many cases, is pretty way ahead of its thinking, and I think that's because it started further back. If you look at the classic sort of cycle of innovation, um, there always used to be this uh, management mantra that you needed first mover advantage. But actually, if you look at it, um, you find that from a technology standpoint, most people who moved second got further. And that's because the first movers solve a lot of the problems. And then the ones who are behind have to catch up. 
and will leapfrog those who were there first, who are then encumbered by the legacy that they've created, because we always create legacy as we go along. There is no, there is no such thing as a transformation which is finished. So I completely agree. In fact, we had a podcast just the other day with Emma McGuigan in which we sort of got into this conversation about data. So I think there's an awful lot of people out there that just assume that the data bit's fixed and that it's just a case of plugging it into AI or automation or or whatever it is you're you're trying to transform in your business. And, you know, kind of the sausage machine will produce answers. But as you say, it does seem to be that the data part needs serious investment if you're to get data that's worth having to plug into the machine in the first place. And I wonder, is this a skills issue or is is this even data scientists not quite being ready to give up some of their past, I don't know, control of of data collection or, or data sorting? What's, what needs to kind of happen to get people to say, here's a percentage of our budget that we have to invest here and then find the people who are actually going to invest it, invest it fast and efficiently uh, with a very clear outcome uh, involved rather than have a sort of data scientist, um, you know, kind of focused piece that isn't looking at the, the process, the outcome of the business. There are data scientists and data scientists, let's put it that way. So at the ONS, we built the data science campus and the data science campus has access to new tools and technologies and techniques on the analysis side, and let's call it that rather than just focusing on data science, um, many people in academia and elsewhere have been working with data for a long time. So there are people who are used to looking at data and gaining insights from it through some sort of um, computation or analysis. But if you like, a, an intellectual use of data never assumes that that data is correct. You should always be looking for the anomalies in the data you should be looking for biases in data. You should be looking for where your algorithms, you know, we hear a lot about um, people doing work around the bias in machine learning because of the training data sets. So these are very exciting times, but we must always be aware that we need to take a step back. And when looking to solve problems, do so with a multidisciplinary team. And this is where I think the digital agenda has a lot to offer as we move forward, because the concept of working agile, the concept of trying things which might fail, but particularly the concept of bringing together teams who would previously have worked in different silos to work together so that you're looking at problems from, from multiple angles is, is very, very important. So when we look at skills, I would say that the, the place where I see the deficiency in skills is in the deep systems engineering, and the data architecture. And also, anybody who works with data, anyone who's done, done or is doing a data transformation will know that um, a lot of that work is extremely mundane. It is extremely mundane to take an organization's data and to basically get it organized when it is sitting on siloed machines in different formats the, the, the fixing the plumbing is not the glamorous part, but that's a very important part. And I think that that sometimes gets, the importance of that gets neglected as the foundation because it's not the bit that draws the pretty picture, if you if you see what I'm saying. So where, where I would advise 
organisations, um, government and private sector and NGOs, charities, is to put more investment into sorting out that underlying data, the underlying data that you hold in whatever form. Yes, that's a conversation we have here a lot. <laughs> and I think uh, you're absolutely right that that's, that's what they need to do. So, what's, so the role of the digital leader in an organisation, how do they or how important is it that they have a, a working understanding of data and, and kind of how would they go about getting that? Uh, is it about having a bringing in a trusted advisor or yes, I mean, that's obviously very challenging. Uh, to to understand what it is you need to understand about data to make your organisation work. Yes, I mean, I think a digital leader um, needs to be a digital and data leader or you need to have digital and data leadership working together in harmony. Um, so I think where digital skills are um, most valuable are understanding users, technology, how to serve users better, helping implement technical solutions to deliver solid policy and strategic outcomes. But we need to have people in those teams and we need leadership. Leadership at the data level is still pretty sparse. I mean, if you look at the number of large organisations who do not yet have a chief data officer, that's um, that's something which I think is is quite scary, to, to, to be frank. So, but if you just want to get into data within your organization, there are some very simple ways to, to start thinking about it. Um, processing data and setting up systems to process it might be rocket science, but thinking about it is, is not rocket science. So within your organization, you need to start to gain an appreciation of where is your data, what is it used for, who owns it, and what are the if you like, the what legislation should you be following? We all talk about GDPR. GDPR is not is is part of the part of the picture. But what are your policies for holding, using, and giving access to that data? What are your views around data privacy? Do you trust the individuals? How do you put in place business processes so that you know that the individuals in your organisation who have access to what is sensitive data, and I wouldn't, in that I'm not just talking about personal data, I'm talking about commercially sensitive data, who has access to that data? So data needs to be thought of in the round from a technical perspective, from a user and access perspective, and also from a security and, and corporate asset perspective. And at what point does that tip into wrapping my arms around the data and not wanting to share it? Because that's some of those things you've just said are sometimes used as kind of an excuse for not sharing data. Yeah, so they, they're very often used. As, uh, there are many, many um, excuses people have for not sharing data. Now, in my experience, um, not sharing data isn't actually primarily about any of those things. I think that when people don't want to share data, it's because they um, are worried about the risk of doing so. And one of the key things that you find is that um, individuals will be working with data and because they're familiar with that data, they will know that that data is not perfect. And so in sharing that data, I think that there is a sense that they're going to be found out that they are working with data which is not perfect. It may not be perfectly clean. They may be having to make decisions based on 
um, not having 100% cover of, of the data that they would like. Um, they will probably be shoveling it around on a spreadsheet. They won't have a very good system to hold it on because naturally these things have been built over the years in silos. So one of the, one of the things that you have to work hard to do is to break those cultural norms that this data is mine, nobody else can see it, I own it, I'm responsible for it. Of course, we want people to be responsible for data. But when you start to share data with others, what happens generally is the more people who have access to that data, the better that data becomes because people will pick out the anomalies in the data. So if you want to get onto a path of continual improvement with data, really what you need to do is to allow groups of people to share it and to work together. So you want people to be responsible for the data, but you also want them to be open in the right cultural environment to sharing it, discussing it, talking about its strengths and its limitations. We've covered such enormous ground, both your fascinating background. You mentioned Francis Maud, who was uh, has previously been a chair at Digital Leaders and, and uh, sort of the whole open data push when he was at the cabinet office and we didn't really touch on that. So, you know, perhaps we should have you back on another time to, to talk perhaps on a slightly different uh, set of issues, but we do have our quick far end to our podcast and I wouldn't want our listener to miss out on that. So um, what one book are you going to recommend to our listener? Okay. So the book I'm going to recommend um, is called the accidental further adventures of the hundred year old man by Jonas Jonasson. It's a nice light read about, I won't give, uh, I won't do too much spoiling. It's a nice light read where this elderly gentleman is, is in a fictional way coming across many of our world leaders now, like Donald Trump and Angela Merkel. And he um, runs his life because he discovers the iPad. So it's a lovely book, um, nice and amusing. And that's the book I would recommend if people want a little bit of light relief from their data. Fabulous. And then our second is, who would you like to have lunch with, living or dead? Well, this one is, this is difficult because there are so many people and I am fascinated by almost everybody I meet. I think the world is full of wonderful people and everybody has their story. But I will say um, Richard Feynman has been my lifelong hero. Um, the theoretical physicist. Um, people will know that he was integral to the, for, the formulation of quantum mechanics, but also he had a great intellect. He, he was a great teacher and he really understood how people work. And one of the quotes of his, which I love, is he said, it's okay to say, I don't know, the pleasure is in finding out. And if you have never read any Richard Feynman, I recommend you to do that too. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, there'll be lots of us now going off to find out more about Richard Feynman. How are you spelling Feynman for, for the idiots amongst us like myself? F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and last but not least, what one thing would you like to share with our listener about yourself that they might find surprising? I think sometimes I could be seen as quite a serious and intense person. And I've always taken my work very seriously. I'm always driving things forward. And also, you know, you, you, I think that although you know people at work, you don't always 
know them as well as you think you do. So I think some people might be surprised to know that um, I drive a wonderful Honda S2000 Cabriolet sports car. Um, it's my pride and joy. They don't make them anymore. It's got a VTEC engine and I um, enjoy the only pleasure left in driving, in my opinion, which is, um, it is it is not illegal to accelerate from traffic lights, which I enjoy doing enormously, particularly um, if there's a young male Subaru driver, as there was recently, who was looking at me with my grey hair in my car and tried to beat me from the lights. And I had taken him at 50 metres. Of course, I then slowed down and let him go by, but it did give me great pleasure. Fabulous. And probably filled him with shame that uh, he was burnt off. So so very quickly, I love cars myself. So uh, this is a kind of incredibly high revving engine. Yes. The VTEC. And what's your what's your best not to 60 uh, on a, in a legal situation? In a legal situation, probably not as fast as it could be, but um, uh, it faster. let's just say fast enough. Fast enough. Fantastic. All done within the... Uh, Within the law, of course, but it's sad. But uh, it sounds like you're having fabulous fun. And that's it. Do you drive mainly in the country or in town? Or I both? don't drive in town. I drive. I I um I use uh, I I use and actually enjoy using public transport. And I particularly enjoy. Um, I live near the Thames, and so I take the ferry when I'm coming up to town, which I really enjoy. So I have that's the slowest right. commute, but I have a, a a good whiz down the A3 on a on a Sunday sometimes. Fantastic. Right, Heather, I'm so sorry we've run out of time, but it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Digital Leaders Podcast. Well, thank you, Robin. And um, uh, I would also just like to say um, how what a great organisation I think Digital Leaders is. And I hope that we are giving a, a lot of help to listeners. And um, I, I also would um, welcome people to get in touch if there's anything that they would like to like help with. Thank you so much, Heather. Um, until next time, thank you very much. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. That is it for this episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast. Now, of course, we would love to know your thoughts. Tag us at, at DigiLeaders and let us know. And if you want to find out more about today's guest, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash podcast and we have all that information there. That is it for this week. I'm your host, Robin Knowles. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.